after reading Proverbs 26, 23 to 28, we'll turn to our sermon text in Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. Let us hear the word of God. Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross are burning lips and a wicked heart. He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. The 20th chapter of Luke, beginning at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on Jesus that very hour, and they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and You are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. God bless this reading and our understanding of his word. In the abounding grace of God, it is not uncommon occasionally to discover something useful, even something beautiful, emerging from the crucible of interpersonal conflict. There may be important lessons to be learned from the field of battle. Now, if you're anything like me, you don't relish conflict. You don't seek it. You're not into picking fights with other people for the sake of fighting. I hope you're not, because as Paul told Timothy in his second letter to him, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. You must not be quarrelsome. But when conflict comes looking for us, when it comes looking for you, 
Let me encourage you in the Lord, dear ones, to be strong and courageous in those moments. Resolve on those occasions to play the man, not the chameleon. Learn to stand your ground in Christ, the Christ of the Bible, and be ready with a biblical answer for conflict and those who bring it when they come. We should all aim to be students of the providentially uh, the providential opportunity to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Because when conflict came looking for him, the Lord Jesus Christ was always routinely ready with an answer. Ready with a good answer, as the scripture exhorts us all to be. Peter writes in his first letter about adversaries who take their stand against the Lord and against his gospel and against his church. Do not fear their intimidation, he says. And do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, he goes on to say, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile you may be put to shame. Opposition comes up against the Christian in one form or another every day. And when it does, we shouldn't consider that to be a strange thing. We shouldn't let it shake us. But we should be ready with an answer, as he was, as the Lord Jesus was. He taught us, didn't he, that a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. So, we shouldn't expect to be better treated by our enemies than he was by his. And over the course of his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus Christ was slandered and put to the test at every turn, wasn't he? And if this was true generally, it certainly was true uh, during that final week before the Passover, that final week before his crucifixion. Everything seemed to be ratcheted up His enemies those days came from a wide range of theological viewpoints, as did the various angles they took in trying to trip him up. You don't find a lot of common theological ground, for instance, between the scribes and Pharisees on one hand, scribes and Pharisees who fully subscribed to the existence of a spiritual life, as they understood it, and on the other hand, the Sadducees, who in all respects were rank materialists. They don't believe in a spiritual life, not the Sadducees. And then you also throw in the Herodians, who believe whatever you want them to believe, as long as it keeps their man on the throne of political power. You had all these groups, and there's not a whole lot of agreement there among them, among these enemies 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they all do agree on this one thing. Jesus is way, way too popular among the people. He's too popular a teacher. He's too great a threat to their own public image and to the delicate status quo that they'd worked out over the years with the Romans, the occupying Romans. In fact, some people are even making Jesus out to be the Messiah, the coming one. Which would make him a rival, wouldn't it? To Herod. A rival even to Caesar. So for the time being, let our other significant theological differences go by the boards. These various groups would be thinking. The Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, Herodians. Let all of our differences go by the board. Right now, they all agree. Jesus has to go. Now, we here uh, together saw the scribes and Pharisees and elders take the direct approach to get rid of him up in verses 1 to 8, a couple of weeks ago, when they came out and asked Jesus publicly, as he's teaching in the temple, by what authority he did the things he did. By what authority? Show us your credentials. And that frontal assault on his ministry didn't go all that well for them, did it? Because on that occasion, his response, a simple question about the baptism of John, his question back to them compelled them to think. Compelled them to think things through before they answered, and thinking through the possible answers left to them It left them with nothing they're willing really to put out there. Why didn't we believe John? The plan blew up in their faces because of their fear of the people. Now in verse 20, a different coalition of adversaries are joining together, deciding on a different, more subtle approach. Jesus is still in the temple there the last week of his uh, earthly ministry. He's still teaching in the temple. And this particular group that come to him are the Pharisaic scribes and the chief priests, who are Sadducees. Very strange bedfellows. They agree on precious little theologically, but they wholeheartedly agree on this one thing, that Jesus has to go. The direct approach, they remember, has not worked. So this time, they decide to go dark. They go sneaky. They go undercover, even. They send spies. What they're doing is laying a trap for him, of course. First they watch him. Then they hatch this surefire plan. Surefire in their minds. Their surefire plan to catch him. Then they recruit the spies they intend to use and coach them, first of all, to soften them up with flattery. And we read about flattery in Proverbs 26, didn't we? 
First soften him up with flattery and then spring on him the question. And this question, as far as they are concerned, this question is the bomb. This one cannot fail. Because no matter how he answers it, it's going to blow up on him. Verse 22, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And I wonder, do you see why this is, uh, why it seemed to be such an airtight plan to bring him down? Because he's in the temple, he's in a public place, lots of people around, and if he answers yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. If he answers yes, then every Jewish patriot is going to turn away from him. Because they're looking for a Messiah who's going to get rid of Caesar for them. Not support him, not pay taxes to him. But if he answers this question, no then the Romans are right here, aren't they? The Romans are right here, ready to take Jesus into custody for insurrection. So the plan is to send in the spies, men Jesus doesn't already know, many won't recognize. Send in the spies. Let them butter him up. Let them put him at ease with a few easy words about how... uh, his teaching is good, and his teaching is true, and he doesn't defer to anyone. And then pull the pin. We've got him. But the scripture says he detected their trickery. And his answer takes all the wind out of his enemy's sails, doesn't it? Because he doesn't fall for the fallacy of the binary yes or no question. And if there are only three things that you take away from our passage today, let the first of them be this. In the important decisions that you face in life, resolve as Jesus did, never to fall for the fallacy of the false dilemma or the binary question. We get this in one form or another every day, don't we? Our polarized culture bombards us with the assumption that, for instance, you are either vaccinated or you're anti-vax. One or the other. You're either a Republican or a Democrat. You're either right or you're left. You're either a Neanderthal conservative or you're a flaming liberal Democrat. Liberal. We're conditioned to think that we have to live in one camp or the other. But a house divided against itself, as our country today very clearly is, cannot stand. Lincoln wasn't the first one to say that. Jesus was. A house divided against itself cannot stand. 
Resolve then, friends, resolve never to fall for the fallacy of the binary yes or no question. Because there may very well be better answers available. Usually there are. So as we face life's persistent questions, let all God's people, from the youngest of us here all the way to the oldest of us, let us begin to think things through. Okay? Think things through carefully. Let's learn for ourselves and teach our children the art of critical thinking. That's important. The art of problem solving. If only we were better acquainted with it, the Bible opens up to us a world of possibilities that our polarized culture out there can't even begin to imagine. Possibilities for a life, the chief end of which isn't to win a political argument, isn't to win votes. The chief end of this life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Jesus demonstrates this resolve to think things through when he answers, not yes or no, about Caesar and paying tax to him. When he answers, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Now this is interesting. They offer him two choices. Choice A or choice B. And he chooses to answer with the square root of three. That's the answer. He answers, in other words, with something totally unexpected totally uh, not given as one of the options. And it's something that blows their preconceived dichotomy of life apart. Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription is on it? And they said, Caesar's. Now, if you take a coin out of your pocket today, it's not going to have Caesar's image on it. It's going to have Washington or... uh, Lincoln or Jefferson, probably. Um, Maybe Kennedy. It's not going to have Caesar's. But their coins had Caesar's image on it. So they said Caesar's. And he said to them, And render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That's my answer. Give everyone his due. You figure out the details for yourself, but give everyone his due. Now that is a clear answer. It's a lawful answer. It's a biblical answer. It's a common sense answer. It bypasses the snare that they laid for him. And best of all, it silences them. At least for the moment, it silences them. They don't know what to say. They hadn't planned for this. So, dear ones, that is my first point for you today. Don't let yourself be caught in the trap of binary thinking, that it's got to be this way or it's got to be this way. The kingdom of God offers possibilities for wise courses of action that the world out there can't even begin 
to comprehend. A second point is this. Have a look at your own money. Have a look at your own money. I mean the coins and the currency. Take them out and look at them sometime. Consider what they have to say. It's what Jesus did. What does your coin have to say? Every Federal Reserve note in your wallet makes this claim of itself. It says, and I quote, This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. That's what it says. Have you ever wondered why that is? Money actually has important lessons to teach us, foremost of which is about trust. Money has lessons to teach us about trust. Living by faith and not by sight. Because there is nothing intrinsically valuable in a piece of cotton-based paper. Even if that paper has the words $100 printed on it, it's a piece of paper. And there's nothing intrinsically valuable in our coinage either, not since the last silver coins were minted for circulation in 1963. I don't claim to be a monetary expert or even an expert on the economy by any means, but at least I understand that our currency and our coinage is completely based on trust in the good faith and credibility of the United States government. There is no gold to back up the trillions of dollars our federal government prints and spends every year. These Federal Reserve notes we carry around with us, they're all about trust, faith, in the promises of men. It was Caesar's image stamped on the denarius they showed Jesus that day in the temple, and Jesus' answer suggests that we should be ready on demand to part with it. We should be ready on demand to part with it, to render it back to him. Now, there's a whole lot to the matter of taxation and tithes and so forth and equity and so forth. There's a whole lot more to it. But bottom line is, this is just money. It's just money. The Apostle Paul told, uh, told us in the 13th chapter of Romans, Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Which leads me to my third point for you today. My third point is to ask you to have a look at yourself. Forget about the money now. Put the money away. The question now is about the man or woman that you see in the mirror. 
every day. Whose image do you bear? Whose image do you bear? And whose inscription? It's not Caesar's. Caesar may have a claim on your coinage. He has no claim on you, the person. You, friends, you belong to Christ. Not to Caesar. You belong to Christ. And beloved, let that sink in for a moment. Would you let that sink in both for yourself and for your children? You belong to Christ. Body and mind, soul and spirit, you belong to Christ, not to the state. You're not a creature of the state. The state neither sustains you, nor heals you of your afflictions, nor redeems you. The state has no power to do any of those things. Whatever its promises to you, the state offers you very little in the way of a future and no hope. So what then? If the state offers us no genuine lasting hope, are we therefore hopeless? If the state doesn't help us, are we helpless? Not at all. All I'm saying is that our future and our hope lie in a completely different direction than the state wants to take us. And the bottom line is this, friends. What I'm getting at is that you, the Christian, should not look like or think like or act like the state that prints and circulates the money in your wallet. If God's own image is upon you, an image once shattered by sin, it's true, but now being restored in Christ, if his law is that inscription written on your heart, then let us cheerfully render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. Give yourself to him. Hold nothing back. And let us be in practice, what we actually are in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that according to the grace that you've shown us in Christ Jesus, we are purchased out of this world, out of chains and slavery into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. Grant that we would appreciate this. Grant that we would be faithful in the discharge of our duties to you and to our fellow men. Help us indeed to be civic-minded in a proper sense, but help us always to bear in mind that we do not belong to the state, we do not belong to civil government at any level. 
We belong to you. We are your servants. Watch over us, we pray. Help us to make the right decisions in various matters that we face every day and every week. Grant that we would love you and serve you with all our being. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.